We step away from our study of First Peter as we come to the Christmas season, and we will be looking at various passages pertaining to the incarnation of Christ, his first coming. So this morning I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. I hope that you are here today to magnify the glory of our sovereign God who has ordained all things for our good and his glory. And I hope that you have come to this place this morning to hear his voice lifted up and his word exalted and also to come to see the majesty and the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we are going to focus on one verse and actually really the last part of that verse. And it is one that you're very familiar with. It is verse 7 of Luke chapter 2. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. As we look at this text, it is my prayer that we will ascend the heights of divine revelation and be able to behold the full panorama of the unstoppable purposes of God, even as we see them in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every true believer alive today is heartsick over the way the Lord is constantly dishonored around the world, especially in our Western culture here in America, especially those who claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly the world mocks him and scoffs at his word, but how tragic it is to see predators and pretenders in pulpits of ostensibly evangelical churches. How tragic it is to see unsaved men and at times women who are immoral and greedy, who are leading churches because of financial reward, charlatans, egomaniacs, fortune tellers, deceiving the naive and the desperate, and bringing unimaginable reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a heartbreaking thing. And, of course, we live in days of apostasy, apostasy that we know, according to the Bible, will mount. It will get greater. It will get worse. Naturally, the undiscerning world looks upon all of this and smugly laughs at the hypocrisy of, quote, unquote, Christians, thinking what fools we must be to believe in such a powerless gospel and some fantasy Christ. But in the midst of our tears of mourning, as we look upon this great reproach, as we observe how the world and many churches, sadly, have reduced the Lord Jesus Christ into nothing more than some kind of a spiritual Santa Claus who is looking for who's been naughty or nice, so that we can give him our list and he will meet all of our demands. As we look through all of that, I must say that my heart nevertheless skips a beat 
when I think of the exhilarating joy of our Lord's glorification in comparison to his ongoing humiliation. And you must understand that the rejection of Christ is going to continue even until the end of the millennial reign. When all things are subjected to him, according to 1 Corinthians 15, when he will finally someday reign in his full Trinitarian glory in the eternal state. But I want you to understand that the Lord's humiliation began when he was born. Again, this is a familiar passage. Perhaps it's all too familiar. Sometimes with familiar passages, we tend to gloss over them and fail to meditate on the profound significance of divine revelation. But you must remember that the Spirit of God did not look for some filler here and kind of put in a few extra words to kind of give us something interesting to read about. But rather, every single word, every jot and every tittle, as the Scripture says, has profound significance. And again, I hope that as we look at this text, we will discover truths of such magnitude that I fear the weight of their glory may break the backs of the very words that bear them. It had been an amazing year for Mary and Joseph, young teenagers. Mary, we believe, would have been around 13 or 14 and Joseph about 15. Godly teenagers engaged to be married, justified by faith in a merciful and gracious God who would provide for them a Messiah Savior. A concept that for them was still shrouded in, in mystery, in symbol, and in sacrifice. The angel of Gabriel earlier had appeared to Mary. That in and of itself would be enough to rock your boat for a long time. The angel Gabriel appeared to her in Luke 1 and said, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Of course, Joseph was shocked at his fiancée's pregnancy. According to Old Testament law, she could be stoned to death. But he loved her and he, being a righteous man, wanted to send her away secretly so as not to disgrace her. And you will recall that the angel of the Lord appeared to him as well. We read this in Matthew 1, verse 20. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we know that Mary possessed a very firm grasp of theology. She had a deep love for the Lord, her God. Her heart, even as a young teen, was saturated with the word of God as evidenced in her doxology of praise, sometimes called the Magnificat, that we read in Luke 1. So, therefore, this young teenage mother-to-be knew that she was going to be pregnant with the Messiah, but she also knew from Scripture that 
According to the prophet Micah, he had to be born in Bethlehem. And they were in Nazareth, some 90 miles away. She also knew that he had to be, as Messiah, the undisputed son of David in order to be the rightful heir of the throne. How on earth will his lineage be proven? Who will possibly believe this? How will this be accomplished? No doubt she asked herself. Well, the providence of God answered all of that. Because in the providence of God, as we read the gospel account, we recognize that God caused a complex saga of political and military machinations to occur as he moved upon the heart of Caesar Augustus to take a census even in Palestine. And this, of course, would require every citizen to go back to their place of birth, their, their place of ancestry, to register. So Mary and Joseph get their little donkey and they travel some 90 miles during her last week or so of pregnancy. Can you imagine that, ladies? Walking and riding. They return to Bethlehem, which was the city of David, their ancestor. And there the official stamp of the Roman Empire would verify that Jesus Christ was indeed the son of David, the rightful heir of the throne of David, fulfilling the covenant promises in Second Samuel that indeed the Messiah had to descend from the loins of David. So after about a week of travel, they would have arrived in Bethlehem. Certainly the Roman officials that were there to do the census with all of the people coming in had taken all of the good rooms and there were no hotels as we would know it. But many people would come and they would stay with other family members. Hospitality was a matter of life and death in those days. So all of the available lodging was taken, and we read in the text here that there was no room in the inn. That was probably not an inn as we would think about it, but rather more of a public shelter that they would have for travelers to come to tie up their animals, to be able to feed their animals in a place to lodge over the night. And typically they would have been, as they are in many places still today, little courtyards with small crude shelters to protect people from the elements. Oftentimes they were little caves, little cutouts in the rocks, and they still have them there in Israel today that you can see. In fact, tradition has it that Jesus was born in one of those little cutouts of a cave, but we don't know that for sure. There would have been little corrals for animals, and as a horseman, I know about corrals and horses and donkeys, and I know that if there is a manger, it has to be in a more secluded area because if you're going to feed your little donkey, you can't have it out there with all of the other animals that would be there because the dominant herbivore in the group will come and eat up all of your hay that you paid for for your donkey. So there had to be some place there where there was a manger in kind of a secluded area because the hay would have been like our gas station. You've got to be able to feed your animal. And they would pay for the feed for those animals. Sometimes the hay would be in a little loft up above the shelters or in a secluded area separated from the livestock, from the horses and, and donkeys. And many times the people would sleep in those places. And so that was probably what was going on there. 
Mary and Joseph come to a place where they're probably there in a little stall. The manger would not have been up where they were sleeping. And therefore, we understand what the text is saying. There was no room for them any place, so they had to stay out where their animal would have been. And those of us who have been around animals know that where they live, there is the pungent smell, ammonia smell of urine. There is the odor of horse dung, donkey dung. And so it would have been a filthy stable that became the birthing room of the Lord of glory. An inconceivable thought. But none of this caught God by surprise, for indeed he has ordained everything, even this very scene, to accomplish his saving purposes and those whom he had determined to save in eternity past. And my goal this morning is to help you think about this dimly lit and this dungy stable. To have you join with me as we peer into that stable and we see blood stained on the hay from the birth. And as we behold the afterbirth moved over there into the corner. And as we look at a little baby that is wrapped in cloths as they would do in those days and placed in a manger. I want you to smell the smells with me. I want you to hear the faint cry of the Savior. And my prayer is that by the power of the Spirit of God, we will be able to look beyond the reality of that scene as it is recorded in Scripture. And we will be able to somehow grasp God's reasons for such condescension. That we would be able to somehow stand in awe as we behold the King of glory, the incarnate Christ, through the dusty air of His humiliation in that place. As I have lived with this text over many days, I believe the Holy Spirit has revealed to me at least three purposes. I'm sure there could be more, but I'll give you at least three reasons for such a lowly birth, three divine intentions behind such an impoverished beginning. And we want to answer the question, why a manger? And I believe the answer is threefold. Let me give them to you and we will elaborate on them this morning. Number one, to exhibit the king's rejection. Number two, to establish the king's humanity. And number three, to exemplify the king's subjects. And from these meditations, I believe, will surface truths that will certainly be offensive to some. And I might digress for a moment. It is never my intention to be offensive, but that will inevitably be the response for those who are proud in heart as they hear the truths of the Word of God. The truth of gospel has always been offensive. It caused our Savior to be nailed to a cross. Therefore, I understand that in preaching... It is impossible to be both popular and faithful. And it is my desire to be faithful and true and my prayer that you will be soft in your heart and receptive. Why the manger? Number one, to exhibit 
the king's rejection. Here we have, my friends, I believe, a picture of a world that will hate the Lord Jesus Christ. The reasoning here is not all that complicated, but perhaps a bit. Let me try to express it to you. Think about it. Because man is filled with selfishness and pride, and because man loves to glorify himself with all manner of self-aggrandizement, with no consideration for the holiness of God and the wickedness of his own heart, man will naturally worship anyone or anything that will portray a likeness of what he wants to be. Remember now, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Now, had the Lord come to sinful man in the splendor of Trinitarian glory, as he will in his second coming, but had he come the first time in his glory, man would have instantly worshipped him, but for all the wrong reasons. Remember, they did this even in his mock coronation, in his triumphal entry as it is commonly referred to when he first came into Jerusalem on the donkey. They thought, oh, great, the Messiah is here. He's going to defeat Rome and we're all going to be exalted. We're all going to have a great place of prominence. All the food's going to be taken care of from here on out. No more work. Nothing but blessing and glory for us all. After all, we're Jews. We're people of the inheritance. Well, obviously they were wrong. They were in essence saying, as many people do today, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, for he has come to exalt me. He has come to make me successful. He has come to make me healthy and wealthy and wise, to give my life purpose, to boost my self-esteem. To somehow help me with my marriage and heal my diseases, to eliminate my poverty and to make me rich. But that is not what God had in mind. You see, folks, you must understand there are two kingdoms that we read about in the word of God, a spiritual kingdom and a physical kingdom. The spiritual kingdom is a personal internal one and the physical is one that will come yet future. It will be universal. But you must understand that you will never enter into the physical kingdom unless you first enter into the spiritual kingdom. And how does one enter into the spiritual kingdom? Through brokenness of heart, through repentance, pleading for undeserved mercy. As the Lord Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A description of those who come to him spiritually bankrupt with nothing to offer. Acknowledging that they are utterly destitute. Beloved, this is the picture that we have in the manger scene. But for man to acknowledge that all that he does and all that he is, is fundamentally offensive to a holy God is a confession that man will never make apart from divine intervention. Because man is spiritually dead. He has no capacity to even see his own wickedness, much less the holiness of God. And you will recall that when Jesus came, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't begin by saying rejoice for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, folks, the rejoicing comes after the repentance. Repentance is the key. 
And in order for one to repent, one must be humble. And all of these glorious truths are an offense to sinful man. So knowing how man's selfishness and pride is enamored with the spectacle of anything that is spectacular and grandiose, and knowing how man would reject his call to repentance, the king of glory is born in a lowly stable, not in a Roman palace, a picture of the poverty of spirit necessary to enter into the spiritual kingdom as well as a depiction of the world's rejection of his terms. So his birth, dear friends, portrayed the very antithesis of man's selfish predispositions. predispositions. So he was placed in a feeding trough. He was dressed in, as the King James would say, the swaddling clothes. Not in a royal crib adorned with purple and silk. Of course, the kings of the earth resented him. We read about that in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And we see that today even in our own government. Certainly in that day, Herod's jealousy was inflamed when he heard that there might be a rival to his throne, some king of the Jews. And he demanded that all of the children, all of the male children up to age two be killed in Bethlehem, the surrounding vicinity. Certainly the religious elite hated him then as they do today. They conspired to murder him from the beginning. Even his own people that he came to refused to receive him. And indeed the world hated him then and hates him now. And all of this, my friends, is pictured in the king's obscure birth in that filthy stable. My heart goes to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, where the Spirit of God speaks through the Apostle Paul and says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. So, my friends, the king of kings arrived on earth in a way that would picture man's need for humility to enter into that spiritual kingdom, as well as a picture of the rejection of his life and message. So he would be born in a manger and he would later die on a cross. He would be born probably in a cave. And later be laid to rest in a tomb. He would be twice wrapped in cloths, once at his birth and again at his death. He would be homeless in birth as well as in death. Indeed, as the Lord himself said in Matthew 8, verse 20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isaiah predicted that men would not recognize his worth. In Isaiah 53, we read that he would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and he did not. We and we did not esteem him. But friends, let me remind you and sinners be warned. He came the first time in humility, but the next time he will come in glory. 
Please know that the first time he came to be judged, but the next time he will come as the judge. Please understand that he came the first time as a lamb that opened not his mouth. But when he comes again, he'll come as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. You must understand that he came the first time being born along in a mother's womb on a donkey, attended by two humble teens dressed in peasant's garb. But we know, according to Revelation 19 and verse 14, that when he comes again, he will be attended by the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. A reference to his glorious church. That's us, dear friends, those of us that are know and love Christ. Remember that he entered the world the first time with only the cries of an infant coming from his mouth. But according to Revelation 15, Revelation being the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the glorification of Christ. According to that text, we read that from his mouth will come a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty friends. The first time he came and he wore swaddling clothes, but when he returns According to verse 16 of Revelation 19, he will be clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But not only does God use this manger scene to exhibit the king's rejection, but I believe, secondly, to establish the king's humanity. Remember, sinful mad. Sinful man can never atone for his sin on his own. Man deserves to die. You must understand that God's holy and infinite justice could not be satisfied apart from a holy and infinite sacrifice. And only by his own provision could such a remedy be accomplished. And this points, of course, to the need for the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Savior had to be both God and man. You see, Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of a man in order to be punished in our place as a man. Yet also he had to be God in order to endure the sufferings of all of the elect. And so as we read scripture, we understand that the work of redemption had to be accomplished by a theanthropon, a God man, one who would supernaturally fuse the human nature with the divine nature and form an indissoluble bond. And of course, we know that the Lord Jesus was the offspring of offspring of David, according to the flesh. We read that in Micah 5, 2, but that he was also God, a ruler whose goings forth are from eternity. We know that Jesus had to be, as the Savior, a man in order to bear the punishment that men deserve, but only God could drink it to the dregs. So both the human and the divine natures had to be supernaturally woven together. You see, how could Christ be our faithful high priest that can sympathize with our infirmities unless he were both God and man? How could Christ be our mediator? Unless he could somehow bridge the infinite chasm between God and man. How could Christ be 
our king, lest he be united to us as a man. And yet only as God can he reign in our hearts and conquer Satan and sin and death. So the Holy Spirit had to produce this amazing union, an inscrutable mystery beyond our ability to conceive. Beloved, Jesus had to be conceived by God and born of a virgin in order for him to be both the son of man and the son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. A son of a virgin according to the flesh, but God with us according to the spirit. And what better way for God to establish the humanity of his son than to have him born of a virgin in a stable and placed in a manger. According to Hebrews 5, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 We read that in eternity past, the father prepared a human body for the son, a body that would never be tainted by sin, by a sin nature, one that would become the perfect sacrifice to appease the holy justice of God. This was the will of the father, and Jesus came to do that will, knowing perfectly well why he was taking upon himself, as we read in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 7, the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We also read in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, friends. This doesn't mean that he came just to die, but to die for us. As a man, he became our substitute. And this is the very heart of the gospel, especially the concept, the doctrine of atonement, which means that there, in an atonement there had to be a provision made for a moral or legal repayment for some fault or injury. So. When we look at atonement, there's two things that have to happen. There has to be satisfaction, and in this case, satisfaction for the offended holiness of God. But that satisfaction had to be accomplished by an acceptable substitution for the guilty party. And all of this, of course, pointed to Jesus. So what would appear to be an unsolvable theological dilemma was all resolved on the cross of Calvary. Because again, think about it. How could a holy God show mercy to a sinful man? (laughs) All sin must be punished. The wages of sin is death. So how can the Lord extend his mercy and his grace to those who deserve to die because they have violated his holiness? He cannot merely ignore our sin and shower us with undeserved blessing because if he were to do so, he would abdicate his own holiness. But, my friends, the resolution was found in Christ because therein God paid the penalty himself, causing mercy and justice to unite at the cross. And all of this began in his incarnation. And therefore, according to 1 John 2 and verse 1, now if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Meaning he is the appeasement. 
He is the satisfaction of divine mercy as well as our source of divine grace. Beloved, this is why God had to become man. This is the heart of the Christmas story. It's all about satisfaction and substitution. When people say, what's Christmas all about? Tell them it's all about satisfaction and substitution. You can remember those two words. And there could be no greater demonstration of the king's humanity than seeing him laying there in a manger, growing up to live a perfect life, even circumcised after the eighth day to be obedient to the law because he was the fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. The word of God tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He would experience all that we would experience yet without sin. All the temptation and the pain and all that we would feel so that his perfect life could be credited to our account, which is the glorious doctrine of justification. Our sin is placed on him and his righteousness placed upon us. So in the infinite mind of God, he uses the manger scene to exhibit the king's rejection to establish the king's humanity and finally to exemplify the king's subjects. But think about it. There in that dungy little place lay the helpless infant, the Lord of hosts, the king of glory. And as you look around that room with me, and as you kind of move away the dust, because if you've ever been in a stable, you know that it's constantly filled with dust. And as you look at that little infant, and you see two teenagers huddled over there, notice as you look there, you do not see kings and queens. You do not see princes and nobles. You do not look around and see generals with vast armies. You do not see business moguls or celebrities, nor do you see the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. There are no vast crowds standing around clamoring his name, bowing their allegiance. You do not see anything that smacks of human grandeur. But rather, you see two teens with no claim to fame and a little wooden trough, a cradle of the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. Yet because of their faith, they were children of the King. They were sons of the Most High God. They were a royal priesthood as we all are who are united to Him in faith. They were two teens who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They were joint heirs with Jesus Christ, sanctified by the very blood of the infant that lay before them that had yet not spilt a drop of blood. An amazing thought in and of itself. You see, Mary and Joseph were common folks. Joseph being a carpenter from Nazareth. Remember, it was said, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Galilee was kind of the redneck area of that region. The people there were by and large uneducated and poor, very common people. 
And yet, these were the subjects of the king. Yea, indeed, they were adopted into the very family of God. Dear friends, please know that the Lord Jesus Christ is king of the weak. He's king of the weary. He's the king of the poor and the pitiful. He is the king of the broken and the bowed down, of the meek and of the lowly. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, Paul tells us. Joseph and Mary there in the stable. What a picture of the king's subjects. Not only in character, but in quantity. Think about it. The few, not the many. Will you notice at the end of verse 7, it says there was no room for them in the inn. You see, not merely was there a lack of accommodation for the king, but his subjects as well. You see, the world will never have room for him nor for us until the king reclaims from Satan that which is rightfully his. We will find no refuge in this place, dear friends, in this world, for he alone is our refuge. Think of how quickly your friends and your co-workers abandon you whenever you start to talk about Christ. Think of the Herculean efforts, even in our country, to somehow remove any vestige of Christ from our culture. And still today, there is no room for him among the monarchs of the world. There is no room for him among even the religious icons of our day. Instead, what we see is the Lord continues to manifest himself to obscure stables of those whom the world considers lowly. He dwells among homes and families who want nothing to do with this world. He dwells in faithful churches committed to truth more than numbers, more than some grandiose ministry. Mary and Joseph and their Creator, inconceivable to me, huddled together there in that obscure and impoverished stable. What a picture of the true church. Church today where only a comparative few people worship the king and typically do so in obscurity. May I digress for a moment and give you a caution. We must beware of any religious movement that has millions of people following after it. Because when you see that, there's a high, high probability that they are not following after the true king. Whenever you see great masses of people clamoring after Christ, beware, because it's probably not the Christ of the Bible. From promise keepers to the prayer of Jabez, from the purpose-driven life to the Pope, dear friends, if you look close, you'll see a very different Jesus. You'll see a counterfeit gospel and a counterfeit Jesus. You must remember that very few will come through the narrow way, but many will be herded through the broad way that leads to destruction. We saw this recently even in a, quote, evangelical leader who was exposed, who led a movement of so-called evangelicals. 
And in that movement, you will discover very quickly that that is one where the gospel is widened to accommodate anyone and everyone, regardless of what they believe. And the king is inevitably and consistently misrepresented. No resemblance of the true Jesus. It's no wonder why Jesus says in Matthew 7 that not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom. Don't be deceived by mass movements, but look instead for quiet and often obscure faithfulness reminiscent of that stable when Jesus came. Jesus clearly indicated that the period before His return would be marked by such apostasy that genuine faith would be very rare. In Luke 18, 8, He says, When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Back to the manger scene. Although there were only two humble subjects invited to witness and participate in the king's arrival, the angelic hosts, we know, quickly spread the news. But he did not go to Caesar, nor did the angels go to Herod or royal dignitaries or the religious elite. But where did they go? To obscure, scruffy, probably smelly shepherds. The lowest people on the socioeconomic ladder. May I remind you that it had been four years since the Shekinah, the dazzling glory of God had lifted up from the temple and departed from the temple. The people of Israel, because of their sin, had not seen the presence of the glory of God in 400 years. And suddenly it appears again. To these shepherds. In Luke 2 verse 9 we read that an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. But don't you know that shocked them? It doesn't say it here, but I would imagine they said, whoa, 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 would you say that again? Yes, there will be a sign. It will, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. <laughs> and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's almost as if God brought some reinforcements here to help the shepherds realize that this is indeed true. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. That could literally be translated, peace to those to whom it pleases Him to give peace. As we close this morning, I want you to think with me. It's amazing here that God ordained even this event with the shepherds. Right after the birth of Christ here, he ordained this event before time began. You see, God wasn't surprised when Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem and, oh, my goodness, there's no room here. What are we going to do? I I, I guess we're just, boy, you're just going to have to sleep over there with with the animals and tether your donkey over here. Well, there's a manger. I guess that's what we're going to have to do. Friends, that is not the God of the Bible. All of this was ordained. And he's saying here, even with the angels, peace among men with whom he is pleased. You see, the point here is that God chose to save some 
just because he was pleased to do it. The angels here are not glorifying God because of what man has done or for what man someday will do, but because of what God has done. You see, salvation is not some prize that man earns when he demonstrates goodwill towards other men. That is a gross misrepresentation of the gospel. Salvation is God's gift of grace given to those whom he pleases to save. Now, what incredibly good news this was to Mary and Joseph and to the shepherds and friends to all of us. Who being recipients of his undeserved grace, then ran immediately, those shepherds ran immediately to the stable. To find their savior and their king laying there in a manger, along with two other fellow subjects who were likewise saved by grace. And, you know. I think that just maybe those shepherds came in and they looked at all of this and they stared into the eyes of Joseph and Mary and Joseph and Mary back to them and they undoubtedly discussed the incongruity of what this is. This is the Messiah in here? The son of David in this stinking stable? This is inconceivable. Lying in a manger as a baby? Perhaps they said, you know, God must be trying to tell us something. Perhaps he is trying to exhibit the king's rejection. Perhaps he is trying to establish the king's humanity. And perhaps he's even trying to exemplify the king's subjects. I pray that you will make room in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will place your faith in His saving grace if you haven't. I pray that you will confess Him as Savior and Lord. Believe that He came and He lived a perfect life and He died in your place and in my place. And He was buried and He was raised again. And that someday His coming, that He's coming again. And I would ask you to bow before Him today. Bow before His manger as well as His cross, lest you be cut off from Him forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for the way it gives us understanding of Your glorious purposes in redemption. Lord, they are so humbling to us. And I pray that this Christmas season will be a time where we reflect upon the glories of your first coming as it was obscured even in the stable and in the manger. And Lord, may it cause us to look forward to your second coming where we will not see you in your humiliation, but in your glorification. And Lord, for anyone within the sound of my voice who knows within their heart that the Lord Jesus Christ is not their Savior and Lord. Oh, they may have some claim to a denomination or they might have maybe made some profession somewhere along the line or maybe done some religious ritual, but they know in their heart that they do not love you. They do not know you. They do not long to serve you. They are not anxiously awaiting your return. Lord, I pray for that person that you will overwhelm them with the guilt of their sin and cause them to run to the foot of the cross where they might find salvation in no other name.
but that of Jesus. And it's for His sake that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.